I think we're live. And if we are live, let's pull this up a little bit. Get a little bit better sound. What's up, everybody? Luke Thomas here. Promotional practice live chat on this 1st of June, 2016. Boy, did that month of May and April just fly by. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, welcome. Today's live chat, we will go over UFC 199. It's only just a few days away at this point. Uh, the open workouts are today. That should be a ton of fun. I guess. Um, we're on the heels of UFC Fight Night 88. Uh, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen out of Oklahoma has, uh, or at least to put out a press release, he's going to submit two, two different committees in Congress uh, legislation to extend the Ali Act to MMA. We'll talk about that as well. Um, and whatever you want to talk about. Best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com, and you can get at me on Twitter at Thomas with the hashtag chat rappers. That gets everything. It's all explained in the post uh, on mmafighting.com so thank you so much for joining me really appreciate it um you're gonna say oh luke you're falling off the wagon and to an extent i am but the last diet soda i had was on the last chat i had so one a week is not the worst thing in the world but here i am making a parody of myself um, by having another diet soda also you can see i trim my beard a little bit right not too bad um looks a little bit more human so i know i was looking like i had an isis beard on um was it monday for the monday morning analyst hang on let's there we go all right let's do this shall we i can fix this mother effing microphone all right um before we start on this there's actually this debate going on on twitter right now you can follow me there at sbn luke thomas i made this point earlier and of course everyone's going to disagree with it because it doesn't matter what you say, people disagree with you on, on online. Um, we'll talk about what this means later, but Representative Mullen from Oklahoma has introduced legislation to extend the Ali Act to MMA. Now, what does that mean? We'll get to it in just a moment. But this sounds like esoteric policy. It is, actually. There's sort of an undeniable truth about that. But I mentioned that it was sort of alarming and almost hilarious. Not quite hilarious, but... And somehow sadistically, or I should say masochistically amusing, um, that the mainstream media is focusing on this like sort of non-existent fight between Mayweather and McGregor, and there's literally no discussion of the fact that this legislation is now, I mean, pending before Congress is sort of an, a, a um, premature way to put it. it, has to get out of committee. But, uh, and even if he gets out of committee, you know, to what extent does he get marked up? Um, to what extent does it change before it's even voted on? Does it pass the House? Does it pass the Senate? And does the eventual president sign into law? So there are a number of hurdles to be had here. But um, there was a discussion about who would want to read such news because I mentioned, wow, they're paying attention to this nonsense news and they're not even mentioning anything about um, the Ali Act. And I think there's some debate about why that is. I think on one side, you might say, well, this is an abhorrent thing. This is actually real news. Why aren't they doing their job? Par for the course with media. I think someone who's cynical might say, um, look, there's real SEO traffic to be had in Mayweather-McGregor phoniness, even if there really is no fight. There's really no benefit from organizations that have uh, infused in their advertising model with their news model um, to be talking about the Alley Act. And I really fundamentally reject that. Number one, I had um, John Nash on my radio show to talk about it. It was not a segment that necessarily did particularly amazing in terms of any of the metrics, but it didn't do poorly by any stretch of the imagination. It did basically right down the middle in terms of actually for SEO content. It's actually been pretty good and, and held up um, nicely within 
Um, um, so the ranking in Google searches, but that's neither here nor there. The point is merely this, is that um, it is true that there's always going to be um, more reason if you want it to be such a thing in terms of traffic returns to talk about Mayweather McGregor. I don't really debate that. I don't know who could. And I think Josh Gross was arguing, you know, you, your readers will respond to what you give them. That's not really true either. Um, I've been studying metrics long enough to know that we actually respond to what they have an appetite for, for the most part. But there are some exceptions to this. Number one, I'm not really going to tell you you have a news obligation to report on things that will sink you. However, there is a case to be made that people will consume things much more readily than you think they will if you deliver to them in a way that's palatable. If you see that there has been news about the Ali Act in MMA and you haven't really dug into it or found it interesting or what you found has not been particularly all that great, you know that's probably the failure of the person putting that content together, whether that's me or anybody else. Um, there is a way to do esoteric policy in an interesting way. Uh, that requires probably a little more effort than it would for something as, you know, um, easy to grasp, even if it's phony, as Mayweather McGregor. But nevertheless, it can be done. That there is a failure to do it is not evidence of the fact that it cannot be done. I think it's actually a function of the fact that people are writing it like they would write any other news and just sort of expecting that it would carry on its own. No, it does require more effort, but that effort can be made. You can do a graphical representation. You can do some sort of video essay. You can do something. You can marry it with all different kinds of multimedia content to make that work, um, and that has not been done. That being said, is that ever really going to match the kind of traffic you get on, you know, John Jones is on TMZ arguing with a police officer? Not necessarily, but this idea that it's a born failure is just simply not true. It, that's just not, I, I know way too much about traffic to say that's true. It's true if you're lazy and you do everything the way it normally is done. And I, I could be guilty of that too. I'm not sort of projecting this on everybody else. Um, you can throw me in that group of people who have not really made it that kind of effort to that yet, but I know it can be done. Um, the second part about that is, is that there's this really sort of false comparison going on, right? So people will say, um, you know, um, why would you why would you post something about the Ali Act when it won't do that well and you could post something about Mayweather McGregor and it will. But the issue is not whether I have to I have to I have to trade. Right? If you were in a newspaper, part of the limitations of the newspaper were literally the limitation of the newspaper. You have this much space on a paper and then you can only flip so many times you have section A to A26 or A30 or 1, whatever it was, then your B, C, D, and E sections as such. You literally had limited real estate upon which to write. Stories had to be shorter, and you had to make really very difficult editorial choices about what could go up. That is not the case with the web at all. Um, you don't have to not write a Mayweather-McGregor post uh, in order to write an Ali Act post. You actually can do both. There is, there is no reason to not do both. So people always make this choice about like, well, I could write an Ali Oct post, but then, you know, what, what am I, what's the opportunity cost there? The opportunity cost, I suppose, is just your effort. If you normally do eight to 10 posts a day, make it 11. Um, and then this conversation is irrelevant. Um, people always say, well, I could always do this one and it would be greater. And that's sort of true to an extent, but only that only really def is applicable to this sort of finite medium where you really have, you have five articles you could write. You have to pick the five most that will do the best for your business and whatever those terms may be. That's not under any limitation that we have. So back to the mainstream media, choosing to talk about Mayweather McGregor versus talking about, um, you know, 
uh, Ali Act in any capacity. I do not expect them to share the same amount of airtime. I do not expect them to, sh to share even one a, a fraction of the airtime. But you can say whatever you want about the mainstream MMA media talking about this and not as much as they should have been. And again, that's true. We're talking about places like ESPN that haven't mentioned it at all. I mean, Ali Act, if it passes, again, we haven't read the legislation as it's currently written, but based on what the press release said, you know, if that passes, you have reason to believe that MMA is fundamentally transformed, and I think in ways not necessarily for the better, overnight. Overnight, transformed like that. Now, certainly, Sports Center has a limited amount of time it could devote to each, even though it's on all morning long and it's on all evening long. They can't fit in one 30-second news blurb. I mean, yes, they have limited time, but they're literally going over the ins and the outs of what they're going to do about Art Bryles in ways that is more than just redundant. In my, in my TV, I turn it on at 9 a.m. every morning. I let it run until noon. At noon, I flip to Colin Coward, not because I think he has a good show, but because it's an extraordinarily well-produced show, and I take ideas from that on how to produce my radio show, believe it or not. Now, what he says is irrelevant because he says a bunch of dumb things, but I watch SportsCenter from 9 a.m. to noon every day I'm home working in the office, and I can tell you that the amount of repetition you get on each interval, this can be met with a little bit of subject newsworthiness. It's just not true that you can't do that. Whether they wanted that is irrelevant, and you can do that online, and they've done a little bit that, uh, with Brett Akimoto, but there could be some video segments that were produced on different mediums or different audiences. It's not really the sum total of everything has to be um, a function of what is and isn't on SportsCenter. So these ideas about content I feel like are really not true at all um you're never going to get the same kind of traffic no matter how good of an effort you put into the ollie act as you are for something like mayweather mcgregor and that's that's fine but this idea that it's a born failure is not true this idea that if you do that you're making these trade-off costs about content generally is not true there's a lot of ways around these problems that i think that and again to the extent that i'm guilty and to the extent that the mma fighting is guilty or Anybody in the MMA media, sure, you know, kill us for it. I, I'm happy to take the criticism because I think a lot of it is actually probably pretty true. Um, we're going to try and get Mark Wayne Mullen on my radio show today, so we'll see how that goes. But um, this idea that we can't get someone to care about this um, is just a failure of imagination and effort for the most part. With that out of the way... All right, here we go. First question. Nate Diaz tweeting about fighting Floyd. Nate has very recently tweeted, I'm the only one in MMA who beats Floyd in a boxing ring. Do you agree with this statement? We shall move on from that because that's not a real question. Someone says, Luke, I think you are wrong about Zufa. I'm sure I'm not, but okay. Why would you think Zufa would take McGregor to court if the fight with Mayweather happens? Well, the fight with Mayweather doesn't happen because he would be taken to court. Surely they would strike a deal and go ahead with it. Would they not want a percentage of probably the biggest money fight of all time? They wouldn't be entitled to any. Would they not want the publicity that comes with the biggest money fight of all time? I'm sure they wouldn't mind the publicity, but they're getting plenty of publicity for it right now. If Zufa is a business looking to expand, would this not be one of the best ways to go about it? This would be absolutely one of the worst ways. You mean to tell me that having fighters uh, breach the terms of their contract would be a great way to go about business? No, I suspect that they would have an issue with that. The Fertitta brothers are known for innovation. Wouldn't they want to try something that is unique that could make them hundreds of millions? They wouldn't be entitled to a penny, so no. 
Top three best worst guests from our radio show. Who are the top three best and worst guests on your SiriusXM radio show? Craig Robinson was the worst. I had Craig Robinson from, you guys know him from those uh, Dodge Dart commercials and um, Hot Tub Time Machine. Wow. Worst mother effing guest on the planet. A lot of times you get these guys, they don't know what show they're going on, and certainly I don't have a big enough name for him to know. Um, but they'll just say yes because they're doing a media tour. And I was promoting, I think he was doing like a comedy tour through various cities. And we had him on. Dude could not possibly have been worse. Not, I mean, not even imagine. I, and I didn't, and I've always, I used to do this on my old other radio show. I would get guests like this occasionally. I just hang up on him. Just, I was just going to hang up. I, I came this close to hanging up on him, but I'm sort of still, still like earning my keep at Sirius XM in terms of like tenure and position and, I didn't want to do it, but next time I'm just going to. I mean, he'll never be back. I'll never interview him again, uh, either by choice or just by default. But um, uh, one-word answers, you know. So, Craig, you know, to what extent are you still doing any college campus tours? Do you feel like there are this, you know, um, debate about whether the PCization of campuses is real or phony? Where do you stand on this? Yeah, man, I uh, I do colleges, but, you know, they, they yeah, I do colleges. All right. Thanks, Craig. Drop dead. Uh, best guest, I guess, Bisping. Uh, Noah Feldman, who was the uh, Harvard Law professor and constitutional law scholar talking about um, why Gawker's coverage of Hulk Hogan is entirely legal and newsworthy. That was great. Um, who's the third best guest? Not sure after that. Those two stand out in my mind. Um, I've had some other good fighter interviews that have been pretty fun. I had Steven Thompson on pretty recently. He was pretty good. I don't know. So those two stand in my mind. Craig Robinson was definitely the worst, but three, I don't know. You know, most are just sort of like average because you do so many of them. But Craig Robinson, definitely, he will always get a thumbs down from me. I never understand it. If you don't want to do the interview, just don't say yes. Like, I'm not going to talk bad about you. Like, Frank Mir didn't want to do an interview with me. I'm not mad at him. I mean, I'm like almost like I talk about it almost because I'm sad. Like, I'm jealous. Like, I wish I could get it. But, um, but no, he didn't do it. So that's fine. Like, if you don't want to do it, just don't do it. Just just say no. Craig Robinson, if you didn't want to be on the show, just say no, dude. And enjoy your terrible shtick. All right. Right hook, left kick. <clears throat> Rockhold versus Bisping. If Mike Bisping circles one way or the other, Rockhold's most well-known deadly weapons await. Sort of. How do you think Bisping will adjust from their first fight to negate the threat of Luke's striking? If Bisping is to defeat Rockhold, how do you personally reckon it is most likely to be achieved? Yeah, so I went back and I watched the first fight again. Here's sort of what I picked up on things. Number one, Rockhold came out nice and loose, man. Really not pressuring Bisping too much. I mean, taking center, but not forcing a whole lot out of him. Just get doing enough to get Bisping to give him different looks. And Bisping was going with the jab, jab, cross, jab, cross, um, you know, jab, hook. Uh, well, a few blitzes, but what you saw from Rockhold was he was just sort of backing away, backing away, parrying shots, backing away. And then he began to do a couple of things. Number one, he would try to greet Bisping with the right hook as he came in. Um, another one is he would try to throw a lot of body kicks. You saw Bisping try to catch the body kicks and turn them into something, which was never really successful. Um, the one thing that I thought that Bisping didn't do was, and he did it towards the end of the first, but it was a little bit too little too late. He was never putting hand and feet combinations together. So he would back him up with his punches and, and Rockhold either block or get out of the way. 
he would throw a head kick and Rocco would bring his hands up, but then there was no real threat after that. Only towards the end of the first did Bisping like back, back well, punch, 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 and then low kick. And all of those landed. In fact, he got a smile out of Rockhold a couple of times on him. Um, I think you can do more of that, you know, really putting it all together because what you saw Rockhold doing was that we had the space to move, but he was doing a lot of backing up straight. Not saying he doesn't know that he should back up in a circle, but maybe he thought against Rock against Bisping, I don't have to worry about that, you know. I, I, again, I have very high admiration for um, Rockhold's abilities, but that he was using them all in the way he should have against a threat that he may not have seen as that serious is a debate we can have. So first part is there's that. Um, and then the other thing about Rockhold that you can get is he is very technical now in ways he did not used to be, right? Really patient, timed. Um, or I should say times his counters. Um, but one thing you can get him to do because he's such a competitor is you can get him to react. So for example, when Bisping would land on him with those, you know, punch, punch, low kick, he would immediately get Rockhold to charge out of position at him a lot. There's got to be a way to exploit that somehow, either with a takedown, meeting with a knee up the middle, meeting with a flying knee, be ready for the counters. Because what was happening was, Bisping would land. This would clearly anger Rockhold. Rockhold would respond, and Bisping would duck and get out of the way. Now, ducking and get out of the way is fine if you're planning to go for the long haul, but he's already Bisping has already stated quite matter-of-factly, I don't have the cardio to go five rounds. Everyone knows this. Like, I just got to take it to him. If you're going to hurt Rockhold, and he's going to lunge at you because he wants to immediately respond. A lot of Muay Thai coaches will tell you this. You get kicked in the legs, kick him right back. Let them know there's a cost for everything they're going to do. You see a lot of that in Luke Rockhold, and sometimes he can get a little careless with it. Um, that's an opportunity to take advantage of him. When he's going to leap out of position, when he's going to run at you, and he's going to do things just to get back at you because you got on him, there's there's opportunity there. Uh, now, there's risk there, too. Well, there's risk at everything, I suppose. But for me, it was just that Bisping was showing his cards early. Rockhold was letting him. There wasn't enough variation of a threat there from Bisping. And as things went on, Rockhold got looser and looser and looser. Bisping had his moments again when he would put the hand and feet combinations together towards the end. But it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And by the time Luke Rockhold got really warm, um, it was, you know, too little too late. Now, how do you get in on Luke Rockhold and get him against the fence? Boy, that's not easy. Maybe you have to hit him and force him to come at you. They'll make him come at you. Because when Luke Rockhold was not trying to counter, when he was just circling, I mentioned before he was going back straight a lot. But there were also times where he was really good about keeping his back off the fence. He's hard to get a hold of if he doesn't want you to get a hold of him. So how uh, they solved that problem, you know, there's obviously a lot better minds than me. Jason Perillo can figure that out. But um, just some of the few things that I noticed in that first fight that can be fixed. Rockhold will leap out of position when you land on him because he wants to get you right back. That's a chance to do something about it. And, uh, you know, just, just making the combinations longer and involving more dimensions, I think, um, can maybe do do some benefit for uh, for old Mike Bisping. One says uh, trap. Bisping has to set a trap for Rockhold. Circle into the direction of the kick and mix it up the way he counters it. Catch it, check it to avoid it rather than counter. Circle into the direction of the punch and block it, duck it, or beat it to the punch and jab followed by a leg kick. The jab or the leg kick one, I certainly agree with. Keep Rockhold off balance, fainting, throwing punches to the chest. The other thing that Bisping was doing that was really weird, and I don't quite understand it, is he – so uh, right away, Rockhold took center. 
not like the super dominant way where, you know, you know, uh, for example, McGregor's pushing you behind the two black lines, not that, but he would take center and Bisping would, would blitz him backwards. You know, Rockhold would get out of the way. This was like very early on first couple of minutes. And then what would happen is Bisping would walk backwards and then Luke Rockhold would just walk back into the space. Like why give him that? That wasn't clear to me either. Now there might be a reason for that, that I'm not aware of. Um, in which case, I'd be happy to entertain information about what's happening there. But, um, but that that to me was a little bit interesting. Uh, more exciting fight: Bobby Green versus Dustin Poirier or Lamas versus Holloway. Oof, that's interesting. Probably uh, Green versus Poirier. Hmm. Um, I can see. Holloway's takedown defense and his ability to get up, up off the bottom is is just phenomenal these days. But more than that, he has a sort of de facto takedown defense by virtue of his movement. And so Holloway's fights take a little while to warm up. I can see Green versus Poirier getting hot much quicker. Um, two guys that are a little bit more happy to exchange on the feet. Now, Poirier might take it to the ground um, and mix things up, you know, strike a little bit, take it to the ground a little bit. Just, just put it on Bobby Green in a way where he can't get anything going. I can see that too, but those guys are a little bit more offensively minded, whereas certainly Holloway is offensively minded, but he likes to chip at you death by a thousand cuts, and then you know all of a sudden you're turning into a roaring blaze of a dumpster fire. Um, so if I had to guess, I'm guessing Green versus Poirier, but who knows, man? Ricardo Lamas is a big punch. He can wrestle his ass off. He's got a lot to prove. It's a big fight for him, so um, certainly wouldn't discount that. Uh, Caraway says, no thank you to Cody. Given the respective journeys and current rankings placings, do you agree with Brian Caraway when he says that fighting Cody Garbrandt is perhaps not in his best interest of his career right now, maybe even a backward step? So before I answer that, let's look at where they are ranked. Now, again, these rankings are done by diggity donks, but such as they are. So you've got, obviously, Cruz as the champ. Number one, Dillashaw. Two, Faber. Three, Asuncao. That's hilarious. Asin Sal is three. And he hasn't fought in like when was the last time Asin Sal fought? Just to be fair. Uh, let's see. I fought in almost two years. That's awesome. Um Asin Sal, Caraway, McDonald, Sterling, Garbrand is at seven. Uh, then Dodson, Almeida, Lineker, Mizugaki, signs. Um, if I'm Caraway, here's my response. So, for example, I'll answer one of these. Hold on. Let's see. Um, so a step back, okay, if you're Brian Caraway, would you want to fight Cody Garbrandt? Very simple question, right? If I'm Cody, if I'm Cody Garbrandt, I would want to fight Brian Caraway for all number of reasons. Number one, he's ranked above me. Number two, uh, probably like my chances of beating him. Um, but more than that, if you're Caraway, you're ranked ahead of him. He's a ridiculous challenge. He's on fire right now. You would probably want no parts of him. 
right? Title shots are hard to come by. You're going to want to do everything you can to move ahead in those rankings. Um, you're going to want to take on someone like a Dillashaw or a Faber or whatever the case may be. Um, or Aston Sal again, if, that, if it comes to that. But you're not going to want to take on a surging contender who is um, just a monstrous puncher and is ranked below you and has nothing to lose in that sense. Because even if he loses, he's still so young and can get ahead in the game. Caraway, if I'm not mistaken, is 31. So I can understand. I'm not saying I don't want to see that fight or that I understand why Cody Garbrandt wants it or that even that the UFC won't try to make it. But if I'm Brian Caraway, I can also I can use the fact that I've got a little more tenure than in the division, which has pushed me further along in the rankings as a reason to skip a fight that seems like a tremendous risk with very little upside. Someone says, I'd agree with that, that it's, you know, high risk, low reward. But in my opinion, Caraway has been reluctant to fight because his contract is garbage. He stopped taking fights as often after the Reebok deal was instituted. Aljo is on 30-30, Garbrandt is on 24-24, and Almeida 25-25. Guess what Caraway makes? 18-18. And I doubt they're giving him better payday anytime soon unless he becomes champ. If I were him, I might just Tyrone Woodley this whole S and wait around to see if I can get the shot. The champ can't be denied a better payday. Um, there isn't a single champ hovering around 18-18. Fair point. Someone says, Viva Real. Congrats to your boys at Real Madrid for another championship. La undecima. But my real question is, how do we convince Pepe to quit his successful career as a footballer and take up MMA? I'd pay good money to see him get his ass beat. <laughs> Thanks, and keep up the good work. Yeah, people don't like Pepe, you know. He is a grade A flopper, a grade B complainer. I think Sergio Ramos, I would say, is a grade A complainer and a grade B flopper. They kind of alternate in that regard. Um. But uh, people can't stand. You know what's amazing about being a Real Madrid fan? And you're not deserving of any kind of um, pity as such. But people love to hate Real Madrid. Like, they truly do. Like, if I was waiting on Twitter, because I was tweeting just a little bit. I was waiting on Twitter. If they had lost that game, my timeline would have been filled with F you, F you, in your face, eat S, eat S, drop dead, you suck. Blah. I mean, it would have been just, just an, an unending stream of hatred. What it wound up being was a couple of congratulations um, and then a lot of, you know, uh, gl you know, glory hunter, uh, Real Madrid suck, they didn't deserve this, you guys stole this, you had an easy run to the championship. People love, and I mean love, to hit on Real Madrid. And I'm so sorry y'all are so mad, but they won. So, Zidane, you believe that? Took over after Benitez. Turn that team around, son. And Colombia versus USA in the Copa America on Friday. So we already made plans in the Thomas household that my wife and I are watching that game separately. More likely outcome. Luke wins against Bisping in the first round or Faber finally wins a UFC belt this Saturday. Yeah, I mean, come on. The first one, right? Doesn't take too much thought. The real question, is JDS the greatest heavyweight of all time? Nope, sure ain't. 
Uh, Luke, discussion of the heavyweight greatest of all time is one of the most disputed issues among fans and analysts alike in MMA. It is well known that long-term dominance as a heavyweight is almost non-existent due to the chaotic nature of the division. Not sure what that means. The majority seem to argue that Fedor was the greatest since he was undefeated for 10 years. But his competition was relatively meager in comparison to modern heavyweights. Cain Velasquez and Fabrice Verdum were also top candidates for the greatest of all time conversation. But someone's name has never gets mentioned as JDS. Well, there's a reason for that. Although he's lost to both Velasquez and Overeem, JDS has wins over Cain, Verdum, Miocic, Mir, Hunt, Rothwell, Nelson, Struve, Carlin, Gonzaga, and Krokop. Question. Considering JDS has beaten four former UFC champions and a slew of contenders in the prime, could you make the argument that he's the heavyweight greatest of all time? No, you could not. Um, so for a few reasons, uh, you know, and I've thought about this too it, at heavyweight because Verdun losing to Miocic, especially in the way that he did, it sort of removes him from the conversation. Now his resume is interesting too because of course he has wins not over, not just over uh, Velasquez, Fedor, and um, um, Nogueira, he submitted all three. So there's something interesting about that as well. And he has a win. He has wins over, not necessarily over him, but um, he has wins over Kane. Uh, lost to Miocic. I don't think he fought Mir. He has a win over Hunt. He has a win over Nelson. And I'm not sure who else old Fabricio has fought off the top of my head. Let's see. Some of the same names. He's got wins over Velazquez, Hunt, Brown, Noguera, Russo, Nelson, Fedor, Bigfoot, Mike Kyle. Yeah, he did beat Gonzaga. Oh, that's right, in the second round at uh, UFC 80. Uh, Alexander Lianenko. He beat Alistair previously the first time, although the second time was a terrible fight. And he actually beat Gonzaga twice. I forgot he fought him back in the old jungle fight days. I'm slipping. That's right. Beat him twice. Um... So, so no, I mean, here's the problem with the heavyweight discussion that I can as, uh, ascertain it today. There are a couple of guys you can rank up there for these resumes. You can even throw JDS in the conversation if you want to, where they have these pretty nice win streaks going. They've got a lot of names and scalps um, that they've collected. And, and I'm sort of thinking about it, like, what makes Michael Jordan the greatest of all time, arguably, in basketball, right? Um, you know, as the years passed, people keep running up on his records, be it you know, points in a playoff game, it be it uh, points in playoff games total, be it his triple-doubles, you know, uh, what Russell Westbrook is doing. It's unheard of in terms of triple-double machinery. Um, it, it, whatever you want to mention. Of course, he was good on the defensive board as well. But um, is that there's sort of something transcendent about his ability, right? There's still something that clearly sets him apart. If it's not one or even two individual records, even people are creeping up on them, it's this totality of performance across these numbers of, or the, across these various metrics. Um, and there's just this, you know, universal appearance in these discussions about what makes good players, right? Again, winning MVP awards and uh, the number of rings he collected generally and whatever the case may be. The problem at heavyweight is you've got guys who've got great wins. You've got guys who've got great win streaks. What you don't have is somebody who has committed to some level of transcendent winning. Um, even Fedor cannot claim that. He can claim the 10 years undefeated, but as you noted, the record is a little bit up and down in terms of the strength of schedule. Um, and I'm really not sure what it would take to put someone over 
um, as this greatest ever, short of just simply not losing anytime soon. And I don't really know how likely or reasonable a assumption that is. You know, look at GSP. It's like he didn't just win a long time. He won against the best for a very long time. Same with Anderson Silva. You can say that as well. Um, at heavyweight, you've just got everyone. There's just an unbelievable amount of parity that puts these asterisks over everyone's record. Um, and it's this incredible game of MMA math where one is semi greater than the other one in certain capacities, less than in the other. Two guys, one matches up really well against the other, but the one who matches up poorly against that one beats all the other ones that other guy matches up well against. Like it's just really, um, it's just bizarre. It's just a bizarre um, uh, division. I think a part of it is that you have this longevity, guys hang around a long time and they, they change over time. And so you got, you know, look, you've got um, Verdum. Uh, doing well against Overeem, then doing poorly against Overeem. How would he do against him today? I don't know. But these guys, they become different people over time. Whereas I think in some of these other divisions, their careers are a little bit more um, focused and short. Um, but there's that. But um, it's it's a very, very difficult question to answer. So, you know, he's beaten four former UFC champions and a slew of contenders in the prime. Could you make the argument he's the heavyweight greatest of all time? For a guy who got absolutely dominated twice by King Velasquez for a guy who just got knocked silly by Alistair Overeem for a guy who, you know, he, I'm not saying he barely got by Steve Miocic, but it was not awesome of a performance. Um, you know, it's a difficult argument to make. Um, it's a very difficult argument to make. Um, because there's just such glaring, these guys are at heavyweight. They're incredible of such greatness and then such glaring weakness at the same time. Let me look at JDS's resume here for just a second. It's an interesting point. The, the Overeem and Velasquez losses, and then he lost to some donk back in the day. I, I certainly feel like the conversation is more relevant now with, with um, Verdum losing, and, and not just losing, but losing in the way that he did. But... It's it's a difficult it's a it's a tough argument to make. The hammering he took at Velasquez, I think, made such an impression. You know, didn't you lose or you know, what was the way in which you lost, you know? I think this also sort of informs the conversation, but it's an interesting point. I have to think more about this question. This is not a question I've thought deeply about enough, as you can tell. Uh, all right, moving on. While the reasons that Michael Bisping can't win on Saturday are numerous, no training camp, already lost to Rockhold. What avenues, if any, do you think he has to to victory. Someone says TKO injury. That's hilarious. I think we've already sort of discussed it. I think um, you, ha you have to force Luke Rockhold to make mistakes. A lot of guys, you know, that's very uh, more difficult to do than others. But Luke Rockhold, if you just try to, t I think if Michael Bisping tries to generally apply his normal game to him, um, Luke Rockhold will adapt and then essentially just overtake him. But to the extent that he can. I think I mentioned before, land and force bad reactions from him and then quickly act on those reactions, there may be something there. There may be something there. But I think he has to brawl with Luke Rockhold a little bit. If you just want to go out there and be technical with him, it did not look to me like there was a lot of opportunity there to just be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be as technical as you are in this one. Luke Rockhold's got a much longer reach. Remember that one, Luke Rockhold is southpaw, Michael Bisping stands open, so that power kick to the body, it lands all the time. Ah, it's just not really a... It just doesn't seem like a very reasonable thing to assume that that's going to work if it didn't work the first time on a full camp. Granted, that was almost two years ago as well, but you get the idea. 
Barbas is here. He's agitated. Um, you got to you got to brawl with him a little bit, and that's dangerous and scary and easy for me to say. And, and but I just don't see any other real, real opportunity. Force him into making crazy, wild decisions, and then find a way to counteract. Find a way to make that work. Short of that, I just don't know. You know. Are we possibly looking at the last truly big, meaningful fights for two of the last remaining stars from the tough era boom in popularity with Faber and Bisping? It's not the last truly big, meaningful fights, but we are approaching that. There's still some guys in part of that tough boom that are competing. Um, you know, GSP is expected to come back, for example. Now, he was competing before the tough boom, but certainly he benefited from it in a general way. Um, You've got Anderson Silva, who's still around. There's a number of names you can list, but to your point, that you know, uh, 2005 tough boom to the end of the Brock Lesnar era, the names who came up during that time, they're fading out pretty quickly at this point. Um, the question mark kick, Luke. This seems to be one of the most underutilized techniques in MMA today. Rockhold, it's true, is one of the only fighters who repeatedly throws it. Very true. Uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is just mag. That's why he knocked out Dan Stigen. Recall, uh, and he had a good deal of success landing it, landing it against both Michael Bisping and Chris Weidman. Rory McDonald also used this kick frequently against Demi and Maya and BJ Penn. What is the function of this unorthodox kick, and why don't fighters uh, add it to their arsenal? Uh, there's probably a number of functions in terms of the distancing of it, but the number one function that I'm aware of, and again, I highly recommend you ask a real striking coach this for a much better answer. But a basic answer is going to be that people think that it's going to be a middle kick. Uh, and what winds up happening is because of the late foot, the, the bottom foot positioning, which makes the question mark or Brazilian kick, uh, Glaube Feitosa was the king of this. They think it's coming up the middle. People bring your hands down. And what winds up happening is your leg flicks over the top and then cracks them on the jaw. So that's the difference. Uh, that's the key. To, and there might be some other issues that and uh, benefits from it as well that I'm not aware of. Again, I highly recommend you ask a real striking coach about it. But that's the key basic thing that it does it you believe it's coming one direction at the last second it flips over the top and then hits you in the head again Glaube Feitosa was uh the king of this back in the, the k1 day it's really really good at it um uh, actually my favorite guy who ever used it if i'm being honest old Glaube. all right true false cody garbrandt has the best technical boxing at bantamweight I'm going to say false on that one. Uh, conditioning is a primary concern for Longo fighters since Weidman, Volante, and Sterling have all gassed recently. I hadn't thought about that. It's an interesting question. Um, I'm going to have Ray Longo on my show today. I will ask him that. How about that? So I'll say false for now, but I don't know. Uh, Dominic Cruz's takedowns are just as well-timed as GSP's. Oh, I'd say better. Uh, and I know people are going to lose their mind, pull their hair out, and say that's not true. It's true. His, his are timed at the most, most precise moment against guys who move faster, too. Okay. If the new weight-cutting rules go into effect, McGregor probably won't be able to return to featherweight. There are no rules. They're guidelines. Uh, Stipe will need to finish over him quickly since he gets better as the fight goes on. 
That's an interesting question. I think it would be to his benefit, but I don't know that there is such a degradation of chance over time with that. Woodley's 18-month layoff will negatively impact his performance against Lawler. Probably. Sure. True. Jake Ellenberger will end up in Bellator after he's brutally knocked out by Matt Brown. Um, I'll say I hope not. So I'll say false as a wishful thinking. Alir Latifi will brutally knock out Ryan Vader. Could. I'll say true. Uh, Luke Thomas couldn't help but laugh knowing that Tito Ortiz was at a Trump rally. Cry, I think, is a better way to describe that. Uh, Bellator will sign Lee Murray if he is released from prison. <laughs> Pro probably. Probably. Someone's asking if I will do more podcasts each week. Yeah, I'm looking into doing content um, both separate from my show, my SiriusXM show, and separate from MMA fighting, like my own content just on my own YouTube channel. Um, if there's something you would want to see on that YouTube channel, and it could be anything, um, let me know. But I am definitely, definitely considering blowing up that YouTube channel, um, working out some ideas. All right. Aldo's mental state. A while back, you said that Ronda Rousey's return would be fascinating regardless of who she'll be fighting because there are big questions about her mental fortitude. Um, who do see this? Do you see this? I'm assuming you're writing in Aldo's case. The case are not exactly the same. Aldo seemed to handle his loss a bit better. I don't like Rousey. His 13-second KO enables him to dismiss it as an accident or a lucky punch, if only for himself. Still, it was such a devastating loss that I wonder if it will affect him in his fight against Edgar. I think it is a reasonable question to ask. Um, but for the reasons you mentioned, I just don't feel like they're the same. You've already got Aldo out there um, talking about McGregor, taunting him. Um, he wanted a rematch right away. You know, with Rousey, there was this rejection of the public. There was this rejection, frankly, of the sport in some ways. There was the rejection of sportsmanship. You know, she gave the most begrudging, congratulatory statement ever on Saturday Night Live. And then of course you hear what happened with Paige Van Zandt after the fact. She has she has desperately struggled with this. And there's that there's this great, great op-ed written by Mike Tyson's former manager. I believe it was published on J School, Jason Whitlock's blog, um, where he just sort of talks about like what are the red flags for prize fighters um, after devastating losses? Because some can come come back and really become something. You know, it's it, it can be dev it's devastating for all of them, of course, but some can really rebound in ways that will, I don't know if surprise you, but maybe inspire you that they were able to overcome um, some of these obstacles. And he was like listing all the red flags, but basically that I think Aldo is bothered by it. And to the extent that he might be bothered by it, that can impact performance. So I think that question is really well intended. The difference for me with Rousey, and I can't say this with any 100% confidence. I don't know this to be true. But from the outside looking in, it appears that there was a different level of being bothered. She appeared to be traumatized by what happened, both by the, the acts inside the octagon itself and this implosion of, um, at least temporarily, I think I think people, obviously she's still a big star, but there was this moment of this implosion of um, stature, of um, you know admiration for her ability, that kind of thing. It really all just came crashing and this pressure of celebrity and everything else. Those are things that Aldo didn't quite have to deal with. I mean, he got knocked out clean, but he didn't get bloodied and bruised and it was just one shot and he was out, you know? 
um, that's different than that sustained beating. And then more than that, like, you know, remember that moment where uh, Rousey launches into the right hook, Holly ducks it, and then Rousey winds up doing like this knee pound. And by the time she gets up and turns around, Holly's on the other side of the octagon, like like a matador treating a, a raging bull who doesn't know what he's in for. This was That was a terrible, terrible beating. Um, and I think that, that, you know, understandably, that can have a tremendous impact on people. So to your point, let's see what he looks like Aldo does against Edgar. I think it's a fair question, absolutely. Um, but if we had to guess for what that's worth, probably not the same level of trauma um, that I think Rousey absorbed for reasons both what happened in the octagon and what it, that meant in her larger world of celebrity and, and stature within the sport. I hope the heavyweights got some undisclosed money plus 10k, 10k purse. They probably need it too. Y'all are still talking about fighter pay. Like, we don't know what the answer to that is. To the extent that they can collectively bargain, to the extent that they have leverage, they will exercise it. If you see low purses, it is because that is a reflection of the market in which they are trying to gather more money. It is nothing more, it is nothing less. If you see a low fighter purse, that's what you tell yourself. Luke, do you have any further information about Bellator, Scott Coker, and Rich Chow, spelled Chow wrong, to the accusation that they falsified fighters' drug tests? Um, number one, I personally find that to be almost impossible to believe, but I don't know that to be sure. Um, I've asked Bellator. Of course, they won't comment on it. Ryan Martinez, who was mentioned in the lawsuit by Zach Light as a guy whose medicals were of dubious origin, he actually tweeted me being like, this is ridiculous. Uh, everything I did was above the book. He actually tweeted out um, the documents themselves, pictures and I think, you know, scanning of the uh, documents themselves. So you can go take a look at Ryan Martinez's Twitter account um, for that. But, you know, we'll see what happens with this lawsuit. I find the idea that they did this uh, virtually impossible to believe. But, you know, maybe it's true. We'll see. Fantasy matchups. Y'all love these. Dillashaw, Garbrandt. Still go with Dillashaw, but man, Garbrandt. Whew, what a terror he is. Mendez Stevens at Featherweight. Hmm. Maybe Mendez because of his speed. Larkin versus Matt Brown. Man, what a sick fight that would be. I'll go Larkin, maybe. Felder versus Iaquinta. Quinto, since it's Italian. Um, maybe Iaquinta. Almeida versus Sterling. Almeida. Barral versus Yair. Yair at this point. Pettis versus Michael Johnson. Pettis. Maya versus Habib. Maya, but only because of the size. Nate Diaz versus Ferguson. Oof. Probably Ferguson. Nick Diaz versus Neil Magny. Nick Diaz. Rushing Garbrandt. Uh, isn't the UFC on Fox Twitter article kind of ludicrous saying that Garbrandt is a threat to everybody, including Dominic Cruz? He is largely untested and only ranked win is over a guy without a ranked win and a tailor-made opponent for Garbrandt. Start slow with a suspect chin. I still feel like the Dodsons and Maydays of the world would still beat him, although I think he can beat Caraway due to Caraway's subpar striking. You're asking about whether or not the official arm of the UFC is saying things that could be questionable in their authenticity. Um, 
Hey, Luke, in your own personal opinion, what is the path for Michael Bisping? Luke, we're going on this already. Uh, here we go. All right, Ali Act. What impact would it have if it expanded to MMA? I'm not really sure what the Ali Act does in the first place. Okay, so let's pull this up. Now, let's be clear about this. The actual language of the, of the um, proposed new law, or at least the extension of that law to MMA, we don't know. And the details of that language matter considerably. Okay. Um, but for now, let's look at um, the press release that Representative Mark Wayne Mullen's office put out. I'm going to read it to you, then we're going to go over some of these things. Now, you can just Google here. I'm going to, I'm going to point it out now. John Nash, Ali Act, Luke Thomas Show. I'm going to tweet this out right now. Here we go. Y'all hear this? Let's see if we can hear this. So let's get right to it. Um, imagine our listeners don't know a whole lot about this. It's for my show. understand why it's important. Can you state very quickly, what is the Muhammad Ali Act? And then we'll get to the MMA stuff in just a second. Okay, the Muhammad Ali Act was a, uh, a bill that amended, amended a previous bill, the 1996 Boxer Safety Bill. And what it was intended for was to add economic protection, not just health and safety, but economic protection for boxers that were notoriously getting ripped off by promoters. Uh, Don King, the International Boxing Club of New York, you know, there's example after example of, of uh, promoters ripping off boxers. And that was intended to help them uh, have some sort of financial security and leverage when dealing with promoters and managers. And so can you give me just a couple examples of what the Ali Act did in terms of maybe regulating promoters or just giving boxers a slight leg up in certain ways? Well, I guess the big thing, it, it added a bunch of uh, provisions in it that gave ostensibly gave boxers more uh, leverage. One is that it forced uh, promoters to disclose how much revenue event was making. So that a boxer, would, he would get told the night before the match how much money was coming in. So the next time he had a fight, he knew how much money his fights generated. Uh, it also put up a firewall between managers and promoters so that a promoter, uh, and I mean a manager, had to have a fiduciary responsibility towards his boxer, not towards the manager. It did the same thing with sanctioning bodies. Um, for MMA fans, they might not know, but boxing is ruled by sanctioning bodies. These separate entities that dictate who gets the title fight and, and basically sanction the event and say, this is the champion. And what that did is it prevents it prevents a promoter from, have a, from, from buying basically a sanctioning body and dictating who gets the title shot. It's supposed to be separate, so that way everybody gets a fair shot at the title. And so, for fans who may not Almost understand, done. MMA is regulated at the state level. Each state has rules. Uh, you know, New York just signed into law a set of them, but it doesn't have any federal regulation. That's why this would be different. But I guess my question for you is beyond that. For the audience at home, how rampant, and then again, they're not violations because there is no law. We can skip that one. Oh, you get the idea. So let's look at that press release. Here's what the press release says. This is worth taking a look at, all right? All right, let's see here. Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen has introduced the Muhammad Ali Expansion Act of 2016. It's H.R. 5365, which you can look up later on as everything gets introduced. It'll show you how it's moved through committee, who voted on it, what's, and so forth. A bill that will extend protections for professional mixed martial arts and other combat sports fighters to help ensure the sports are sustainable in the long term. Um, blah, 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 blah. H.R. 5365 does the following. Ready? If passed as such, 
it would expand and amend the provisional the professional boxing safety act of 1996 which was updated by the muhammad ali boxing reform act of 2000 so as to provide protections for professional boxers against exploitative oppressive and unethical business practices mullins bill gives MMA fighters the ability to guard themselves against exploitative and coercive tactics when it comes to negotiating contracts with promoters. The bill places a one-year limit on promotional rights and requires promoters to inform fighters of the revenue that was made off of a fight. So there are your first two provisions. Number one, a promotional contract. You could have an exclusive promotional contract. It would last a year if this law is passed. If you sign a Bellator, it lasts a year. It gives guys freedom to keep going around. At least that's the theory. If you sign with UFC, it lasts a year. Gives guys time to go around. Um, and this is the one that's big in MMA, or excuse me, big in boxing. Promoters have to disclose to the fighters um, how much revenue was generated and how. So that allows them to know their worth in this whole corresponding issue. HR 5365 also prohibits a fighter's manager from having a direct or indirect financial interest in any of the fighter's promotions. In addition, um, in other words, their duty has to be to the boxer or to the fighter, not to themselves. Um, in addition, the bill requires, which that, that is violated all the time anyway, but I guess most people don't really care about it. But in addition, the bill requires that an official sanctioning body, this is the one that gets me the heebie-jeebies, a sanctioning body be created to develop a ranking system for MMA fighters. This system would be certified by the Association of Boxing Commissions, ABC, and the Federal Trade Commission. The ABC has already shared its support for Mullen's bill. Uh, quote from Michael Mazzulli, who is the head of the ABC, says, The Association of Boxing Commissions has for many years discussed how the safety enhancements and anti-exploitation features of the Professional Boxing Safety Act could be expanded to mixed martial arts and other combat sports. The ABC is here for the safety of the fighters, so if fighters support the effort, Congressman Mullen is making to provide them with more protections, so ABC does too. And then he goes on to say, Mark Wayne Mullen, MMA has come a long way since I was fighting thanks to the dedication of groups like the UFC and Bellator. Now it's time to make sure that fighters have the protections they need to stay in the sport. HR 5365 has been referred to the House Committee on Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Commerce, Manufacturing and Trade, of which Mullen is a member, as well as the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. All right. So there you go. Those are the three things it's essentially proposing to do that we are aware of. Number one, promotional contracts will last no longer than a year. Two, the promoter would have to disclose to the fighter how much revenue is being generated, right? And then three, that it would create this independent sanctioning body. So of the first two, I don't like one of them. Um, here's basically my issue with this. To the extent fighters have transparency, let me, let me just say what I don't like about this Muhammad Ali Act, okay? To the extent that the second provision passes, that they have to declare to the fighter how much revenue is made, in particular if they have to itemize the way in which that revenue is generated, that to me seems like it would be extraordinarily helpful. Um, I'm all in favor of that. That is information that should be disclosed to them. It has my complete and unequivocal support. The other two ones give me great concern. So the first one, the promotional contracts lasting a year, I would be willing to admit that the contracts in MMA are onerous, be it a championship clause, um, be it the clause that's preventing McGregor from fighting Mayweather, that they are far too inclusive, um, 
or the promoter retains too much control over the over the athlete. Um, and there are a number of ways this can be meted out and examined. But yes, that to me gives me great concern. The idea that it would last a year to me seems like it would really damage something. I'll get to that in just a second. That marries with the third provision, the third provision that would create this independent sanctioning body and that they would have that ranking system and that that ranking system and that sanctioning body, they would be the ones forcing and creating fights. I have real problem with that. Now, there's an excellent article written in 2008. I tweeted it out earlier by Brent Brookhouse, who is a boxing fan, a boxing aficionado, and frankly, I think a guy who cares deeply about the health and wellness and the the um, wealth of fighters. This is not a guy who is on the promoter side in any capacity that I can really say would be unfair. And he has written a great article. It's a little bit old. He probably updates some of those views, I suspect, to some extent. But there's a lot there. Um, about why the Muhammad Ali Act does not really need to be an MMA. And the key insight for me, both about that article and my own reservations about it, is that one of the reasons why the FTC has investigated Zufa twice but not done anything is that, one, it's not clear that they necessarily violated any law that um, they could pursue in any kind of real regulatory way. But more than that, the FTC and the government generally, they don't want to get in the way of winning enterprises. It, they don't want to break down a successful business if they don't have to. If that business is just a really strong competitor, they want to keep it that way. They want winners um, to be able to do what they're doing. If they are winners, ostensibly, it's because they are responding to market forces and consumer demand in ways that has been both a great success to themselves as well as the industry that they're in and as well as the consumers that they're serving. The idea that you could have one-year contracts and the sanctioning body, which would only make money if it works in boxing as it does off title fights, which means you would create interim titles and super titles and light titles um, and every number of different iterations, you know, 74 titles for 17 different weight classes does not to me in boxing sound like a model that we want to reproduce. Um, my basic fundamental issue with it is that the way in which the UFC operates, this is a better model for meeting fan demand. Now, I am certainly, if you have watched this live chat for a very long time and you listen to my podcasts or my radio show or any of the things that I produce, I am currently of the unequivocal belief that we are operating in a world where the promoter has way, way, way too much leveraging power over the, over, um, the talent. I would like to see that evened up. I think that would create for a healthier sport. I think that would create for, um, you know, wealthier athletes and a, a lot of other benefits that are currently just not really um, realistic. And right now I feel like the contracts are onerous in a number of different capacities and the leveraging power is certainly quite weak for the majority of athletes. This to me is, is, is majorly problematic. However, what I don't want to see is the UFC crippled to such an extent by federal legislation and the sport affected as such that we wind up killing what is basically a very successful competitor. Because I got news for you. If you have promotional contracts that last no longer than a year um, and there is an independent sanctioning body or bodies and these titles that are held by the organization either disappear or no longer hold the same kind of value, um, we are getting in the way of what I think is a winning, efficient product. It is a winning and efficient product that needs substantive reform in terms of what the fighters are entitled to and what kind of treatment they deserve. The idea that they should sign away their likeness rights to me is just it completely non-starter. Uh, sign away their likeness rights in perpetuity for free. 
you know, these guys are like, check me out in the UFC video game, and they're not catching a nickel off of it. It's unconscionable. It's completely unconscionable. However, the ability of the promoter to make the fights that the fans most want to see, independent of what is ordered by a sanctioning body, um, and a sanctioning body that's going to have its own financial motivations, as we've seen in boxing, its own ability to be corrupted, its own ability to have promoters you know, uh, either milk or leverage those rankings in ways that are either unscrupulous or gaming the system. We don't want that in MMA. We don't want that in MMA. So I'm all for financial transparency. I'm all for giving fighters different leveraging tools. If they wanted to extend the promotional contract to no past three years, that to me would very much assuage my concerns about that. Um, if they got rid of the idea that there should be a sanctioning body, um, that would completely assuage my concerns. These, these are things we can work around. Um, and again, we don't have the exact lettering on, of what is happening here with um, with the legislation. We have not read it. This is just a press release that I read you. The language very much matters here. Could not be nearly as threatening as we think. Could be a million times worse. But for me, um, what I don't want to do is create burdensome federal regulation that ends up killing off... Um, a very successful competitor. I don't know how the fans win ultimately in that regard. That would be under that would be undoing consumer demand um, in a way that uh, is is scary. Um, let me see if he responded. I believe that he did. You get the idea. I read through some of these responses. I apologize. Someone says, um, in all seriousness, though, it seems the MMA media has forgotten no one actually enforces the Ali Act. Well, in a sense, because there haven't been outright violations of it as such, but there have been a number of civil cases brought by boxers against promoters, quite successful ones. Moreover, if the law is you have to financially disclose um, what the revenue is and they don't do it, well, that would be breaking the law. But the point is that the boxing promoters, they just wind up doing it, right? So it creates a new norm. It's not that people are running afoul of it as such because there's a, there's a to some degree, there's a lack of compliance on some things. But on that, there's this automatic new norm of compliance, which to me, is that's the, that's the most important component of the three that was listed in Mark Wayne Mullen's press release. Financial transparency. I cannot see if you really, really care about making an even playing field for the fighters. I cannot imagine why you would be against that. That is critical information to understanding their value in the space and to what extent they're drawing revenue and to what extent they are entitled to financial rewards. Um, essential, critical information. All right. Let's see. Someone says, when are you going to change the background? Yes, I went to Fast Signs here in D.C. I got some new backgrounds coming. Y'all are haters, but they're coming. All right.
Let's see. So pay attention if you want to learn more about the Muhammad Ali Act. I'm going to do some more on it. Again, hopefully to have Mark Wayne Mullen on my show. Let's see what my producer says. I hasn't responded yet. Hope to have him on the show today. Follow John Nash at Hey Not The Face. He, he sort of covers this uh, on the beat. Um, not like the MMA beat, but like the proverbial beat. Uh, he talks a lot about it. I'll have him on my show again. So if you want information about it, it's out there. If this passes, it, it changes the sport overnight. And again, in ways that I find to be disturbing. Um, the idea that we would run afoul of a machine that has been like, there are any number of criticisms, the UFC, you can make of the UFC. In fact, that they have run over fighters, um, you know, not their rights that have been guaranteed in any kind of, or enshrined in any kind of legal document, but as it relates to what athletes and other fighters and uh, athletes and other sports enjoy, they've had some of their rights run over. Um, and I think those things need to be reined back, but it is a nimble, effective consumer demand meeting machine to the extent that that can be preserved which creates more competition actually it requires more from bellator that's great if we want to put on some legal limitations about the length of a promotional contract i think we can have that debate but one year i mean guys can be out for a year with injury and then his thing goes away um this to me is not a particularly guys can be out for two years with injury um this to me is not not the healthiest way to do business uh, when you have created a marketplace that simply undoes the progress and the, I mean, where is the consumer harm necessarily in what has happened to uh, the growth of the UFC? You can certainly make an argument that there's been some harm to fighters in terms of their unevenness of things. So let's rectify that. But I don't want to see this turn into consumer harm. And I feel like that's where we go from this. We're trying to rectify fighter harm. Well, let's rectify that. But let's not rectify that to the extent that we have this dramatically negative impact on consumers. All right. Uh, let's see. UFC and di digital media. Would you make it this recent announced partnership? Nothing. Don't care. Uh, hi, Luke. Could you please explain why you think Brian Caraway continues to win fights he is supposed to lose? He doesn't seem to have the best striking or wrestling, but he continues to win. I love that he wins these, but I want to know why. couple of different arguments. Now, you can certainly go back and you can look at... Um, my Monday morning analyst about this. Number one, Caraway is a slow starter, but he's a good adapter. That's the first thing. Number two, for a bantamweight, he has very underrated skills as a pressure passer, right? He's very good at applying his weight over your back. He's very good at getting your back flat if he's on top. He's diligent and responsible with underhooks. He's always trying to pass. Um, and not in a super fast kind of way, in a slow, grind you down kind of way. He finds a weakness in your grappling and he sticks to it, right? If you're weak on one side, he will get it over and over and over and over again. Really, really good about that. He does have a lot of really good grappling skills. And I actually had him on my show. Again, we talked about this. If someone asks you, what does it mean to have veteran savvy, right? We always talk about that. Oh, well, what advantage does X have over Y? Why is a... 10 and 0, young gun, big power, blah, 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 blah. So and so is 41 and 10, or whatever, 21 and 10, or something like that, 31 and 10, whatever. A veteran. Um, in his side, he's got that veteran experience. What does that mean? Could mean a number of different things. But in the case of Brian Caraway, I think what that means is it's not just that he has patient offense, he's not trying to apply his offense right off the break, right? 
And to the extent that might be a little bit of a detriment, but on balance, it's not. Because on balance, what it means for Brian Caraway is that he's very selective in a smart and responsible way about when he finds his moments to attack. He identifies the moments to attack. He identifies how he wants to attack it, and he waits his turn. And I think you saw that really well in the Aljamain Sterling fight. He got a little bit overwhelmed in the first, but then the second, um, now you can also blame some of the cardio issues, but it's more than that. When he was attacking that outside leg, I think under most circumstances where Sterling is trying to defend the takedown, he was doing it correctly, spreading his feet apart, turning his hips, getting his base wide, shoving an underhook on one, if not both sides, and getting Caraway up and off of him. Caraway has a really good leg ride takedowns or outside trips. Uh, again, I go over all of this in the Monday Morning Analyst, and he found that weakness on Sterling and went back to it over and over and over again. And when Sterling, and he also was able to play games with him, where he would go for, a lot of times guys will tell you if you, okay, he played games with him. He would go for a takedown and get Sterling to react. Sterling would put his hand somewhere, and then Caraway would force him to change that by trying to apply a choke. He wasn't really going for the choke. He was trying to get Sterling's hands to move. As soon as those hands move, he can be into create systems of control to get to the back over and over and over and over again. He's for a bantamweight guy. You don't see a lot of guys who are heavy pressure passers who are heavy on top. Like Brian Caraway, Brian Caraway is heavy on top and a bantamweight. I think that's very rare. I think these guys are not used to that kind of thing. They're used to guys who are maybe mobile passers or, you know, pressure passers in moments. He lays on you and not in a lazy way in a very strategic kind of way. Um, I think that's not common for people with the bantamweight division. And I think you saw Aljamain Sterling, again, I, I show you all the slides, just laying over him in this moment and, 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 and grinding him flat and shoving his hips down and getting to the side and, and, and driving his shoulder in. Bro, that's exhausting. It's incredibly exhausting. And that only made whatever cardio liabilities that Sterling had even worse. And I think that's the kind of thing you see from him over and over again. Real patient about his spots, and when he gets them, he exploits them. He looks at your game, he audits it, and he finds ways he can use his own strengths to take a hold of that. You know, for a guy who has people like, oh, Brian Caraway's got limited abilities. I think no one is more aware of that than Brian Caraway, because I don't think he'd say he's offensively limited in that way. But what he's also really good at is once he sees what you're weak at, he makes great decisions about his own ability and how that would apply to those weaknesses. He sees a certain opening. He's like, I'm going to stick to that. He doesn't really go too far out of his own comfort zones. He finds a way to bring his comfort zones to each fight. He's smart, man. He's smart. I think that's a big component. He's got a slightly unorthodox skill set, and he's really smart about how to apply his skills to each of the challenges that he faces. Everyone's like, he's a, he's a bitch. He sucks. He can't fight. No, what that tells me is you don't know how to look at tape because he can do all of those. And, of course, he's not a coward. He's out there fighting incredibly tough people. You want to fight Aljamain Sterling? Uh, division parity and more. Do you think 135 is officially the most interesting division you've seen? No. Uh, we've already gone over this in MMA beat. Uh, thoughts on Zingano saying Tate chose Noons over home, Rousey and herself. Probably true. Does a champ have that much say in who she, he or she will fight? Um, I mean, they can decline fights, yeah. With the new weight-cutting rules set to be implemented at 200, do you think McGregor will ever make 145 again? Yes. 
Thoughts on Real beating Atletico? Too much class on Real. I thought Atletico outplayed them for the most part, but it seems as games go deeper, Real's class showed. Atletico took control from about the 30th to the 75th minute. Um, but then after that, it was pretty even, if not um, better. Real has a tendency to get f- to fade a little bit and then try to make comebacks. Um, obviously, the work rate of Casemiro made a big difference. You should see his heat map for that game. It's insane. Um, critical errors by, or, you know, Antoine Griezmann missing on the penalty kick. I mean, that was just a dagger. Uh, I thought Lucas Vasquez, no one's talking about it because everyone, like, he had a good season, but Lucas Vasquez getting torched by um, Carrasco on that goal that went in. Thanks, Lucas. Uh, and then, you know, just small errors. Juan Fran missing on the, uh, on the penalty kicks, you know. But I also thought that Real did a really good job of never getting too far out of position. In fact, I thought it was Atleti that was playing out of position for the most part, even when, even when they had so much possession. Um, come to Fight Night Ottawa, White House petition a la Nick Diaz. No. I would love to, but I'll pass. Um, what do you make of 28-year-old heavyweight Adam Milstead? Any potential? Can you go far? We'll see. Obviously, he has a, <laughs> he's obviously a super tough guy and hits like a ton of bricks, but... Uh, you know, it's hard to judge someone off a first UFC performance when they clearly gassed, you know, and I'm sure he had an adrenaline dump. Um, it wasn't easy for him. So, uh, great start, you know, all things being equal. But um, need to see a little more tape on him to have a, a sense of things. Plus, if he really wants to be something, he can't do both. He's got to pick one or the other, which is easier said than done. Oh, someone wants to know the AP Chem story. So, I dug into this. I can't tell both. There's two parts of the story. Here's one part of the story I can tell. Uh, someone says, one-year contracts could also deflate earning potential in theory. Yeah, from Mike Vegan. Agreed. Don't don't like that too much. Um, okay, but the AP Chem story. So I took a bunch of AP classes in high school, so much so that I was able to actually um, – I could have skipped a year in college, but I didn't. So I wound up just taking like, you know, uh, like uh, nine or 12 credit hours for like, I think a bunch of semesters, certainly for the first two, shit, first four semesters at least, if not more than that. Um, anyway, uh, but I had this one AP camp teacher who, God bless him, was just the worst ever. It was one of these guys like, it's like, hey, let's get the softball coach for the women's team to coach AP camp. Like, such a disaster, couldn't do anything. And I, I built the story up to be better than it is because I can't even tell you the best part. Again, there's no cheating involved. I mean, I think I got a one on it. And I avoided the results. Um, you can call and avoid the results before they really become public. But, um, or, you know, they become they become final. Um, and uh, I remember I, like, I was so ill-prepared for that class because even if, if you don't have the right, like, AP Cam was one of those things where if you don't, Unless you're a genius, certainly I am not, and you don't have the right kind of academic preparation, there's nothing you can do. It's not like the SAT where you can do a lot of self-training and you can improve your academic preparedness. This is not one of those cases. So I remember one of the essay portions. Uh, I, I, I should have just not taken the test, but I did as a goof. And I remember it was like, I can't, I can't, it was some kind of crazy question that I barely even could comprehend because this was like the, the worst class I ever had. And I, um, 
And rather than trying to answer the question, I spent the entire portion of the essay allotment, which was what, like 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it was. I can't even remember anymore. And I drew a picture of like this, like, like sun and then like the grass. And then I drew this like stick figure and the stick figure is holding up a sign. And the sign said, I don't know, period. And that was one of my essays at AP Chem. So I want to thank my uh, old AP Chem teacher who that was literally the best I could muster for uh, an AP Chem exam. I think the highest anyone got in that whole class, and we had some smart ones. We had some people going to like Stanford and stuff was a three, like they passed and I was, wasn't going to put that kind of effort in. So I think I got a one and then killed the results. There you go. Will you be in LA for 199? I will not. I'll be in Vegas for 200 though. Uh, Tate should be a bigger favorite against Noons because it's a five-round fight. Agreed? Um, I suspect that will be taken into consideration by the odds makers. Do you believe in objectivity in journalism? There is no reason to believe or not believe. Objectivity is truly impossible. And anyone who tells you, I'm an objective journalist, is either an idiot or a fraud. There is no such thing. There is no such thing in objectivity in journalism. There is an attempt to be academically thorough. There is an attempt to be informationally correct. And there is an attempt at some level of basic fairness. And there are best practices around that. But objectivity does not exist. You have your own biases. These are informed by your gender, by your race, by where you grew up, by what income bracket you grew up in, by what life experiences you've had, by where you've gone, who you've seen, who you've talked to, what you've read, what you've not. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as objectivity. That does not mean we can't, again, make some basic um, efforts towards fairness and complete information. But I cannot guarantee you I'm going to be objective because I cannot. I can only be subjective. In that subjectivity, I can set up walls to check that. And you as the reader can also provide pushback to check it. But there is no such thing as objectivity in media. There's a great essay by a professor at NYU. His name is Jay Rosen. Um, and it's called The View from Nowhere. It's an argument he makes about um, why there's no such thing. I encourage you to go read it. Go read The View from Nowhere. Okay. How do you think boxer X MMA fighter would do in a cage with four ounce gloves, but just straight boxing? What would change? They'd probably lose they probably get the occasional victory and would, for the most part, lose a little bit, maybe even quicker. Thoughts on the bully armbar vid. Kid trains in my school at Miami WMB. I'm not sure what WMB stands for. Um, the kid's been criticized. So this kid was getting picked on. You've seen these two kids. they got to be in like elementary school at some point. Kid drops his backpack, says, I'm tired of being picked on, and proceeds to put a hurting on this bully takes him down, moves to mount, pounds on him and arm bars him um, and doesn't let go of the arm bar. I have no sympathy for that bully whatsoever. None. Zero. Zilch. Who has the best chance of winning Bisping against Rockhold or Faber against Cruz? Faber against Cruz. To be blunt, do you think Rousey made her perceived, quote, fall from grace worse by the way she handled the loss? Sure, I think I went over this last week. Lee Murray was found with a laptop and internet connection in Morocco. This is coming from a Moroccan. Oh, there you go. 
why is it so difficult to win a belt in two divisions? In other words, why is it so difficult to beat people your own size plus beat a bunch of people bigger than you or potentially smaller than you? Well, because there are costs associated with either, either because that you are giving up strength, size, and issues if you're moving up. You could be depleting yourself to get down. Um, your body naturally falls into a certain kind of position for the most part, and that's where you're going to be best equipped to handle challenges. Um, you know, Having size benefits you, but um, you're going to fall into a category. To the extent you move out of that, those advantages that were conferred from being here uh, probably go away. There might be some other benefits you get conferred by changing weight classes, but they are probably on balance a lot more um, challenges as well. Did you ever find out if Golden Glory fighters are still not allowed in the UFC? No. I will follow up on that. I apologize. What's more significant? Faber wins a UFC title or a belt in a second division? Wow. It's, we thought it, I, haven't, I didn't even give any second thought to the, the other part. Um, hmm. It's a great question. Um, probably the latter in the historical. I mean, more noise would be made about the first, but the second one is interesting. I have to give some thought to that. It's really, really smart. I don't know. Do you feel like this debate about the PCization of college campuses is real or phony? It is quite real. Were the UFC 200 weekend rank the champions most likely to lose from most to least likely? Um, Jesus. I, I don't know. Uh, could Cruz compete at with the same height Lombard despite the weight? No. I mean, his Lombard got a hold of him. He would ragdoll him. More ridiculous title fight call out. Caraway or McMahon? Oh, probably McMahon. Uh, breaking news here from Karim Zidane. Being told that Shabalatsham Halaya from well, the Bellator uh, was shot five times in Dagestan yesterday. One bullet in the head in emergency care now. Details to come. That is truly awful. Boy, Dagestan is a rough place, man. <laughs> McGregor versus Stevens. Why hasn't this fight been made? Well, because your boy's not fighting at uh, Featherweight right now. What's the worst journalistic mistake you've made in your career? So, good question. I've talked about this before, I think, a little bit, but I'll bring it up again. Um, we have since resolved our differences. I've apologized profusely. I think he has, you know, I've done enough since then to regain his trust. I had Brian stand on my old radio show. My old radio show was called MMA Nation. This was back in, he was still fighting the WEC at this time. This was back in uh, maybe 08, 09, something like that. And I had him on the show, and the interview went great. And I trusted someone to, and this is going to sound like I'm shifting the blame, but really I'm not. Like, I trusted someone to transcribe it, and they did an unbelievably terrible job with it. Um, and I didn't even double-check the transcription. And I took stuff from there where it, the quotes weren't exactly false, but they were just like, it was more paraphrasing than anything else. And... You know, I think it was one angle about, you know, would you fight Rashad or or would Rashad fight fight John? And this is when they were still at the same camp and I took that out. And so what wound up happening was like not only was the transcription not correct, um, but more than that, it like picked the most salangish, salacious angle out of 
a really incomplete transcript and someone was like you know because it was like a, a week or two gap between the interview and when the, the transcript came out and i just took it for granted and uh and then when i went back and heard the interview i was like oh my god what happened what what did i do he got super bitter at me and, and justifiably so so i take the whole thing down i had to issue an apology i wrote about it and um you know since then i think he's been really cool i've had him on my show a number of times and it's been fine but um suffice to say if you put something out with your name on it you need to make sure it's correct doesn't matter if someone else makes a bad transcript of it doesn't matter doesn't, none of that matters if you have if it has your byline on it and you hit the publish button you're responsible and um jesus that was terrible that's the worst that i can think of I, that which isn't to say i haven't made other ones but that was like oof, bad in general as a member of the media how are fighters to deal with yeah they're fine should hen and Burrell stay in the featherweight division or go back down to bantamweight um I think he should go where he can get the biggest fights at this point because I don't know how much longer he has left. What's worse, the Floyd versus Connor discussions or Floyd versus Ronda? Ooh. Um. <laughs> Floyd versus Ronda. Because when you got Clay Travis out there being like, this is the fight that needs to happen. It's like, I can tolerate the idea that people don't know contractual nuances for Floyd versus um, Connor to some extent, but like gender fight would happen uh, is just so ludicrous um, that, yeah, I just, I can't, I can't. How many times it is what it is, are you allowed to be, to drop before you are no longer considered a good interview? Three. You drop it three times in your bad interview. Um, if Bisping loses this Saturday, does he deserve another title shot in the near future considering the unusual circumstances? Provided the circumstances work out, I suppose, but it would have to be unusual. What technique would you recommend to learn regarding bottom half guard? Set up a Kimura series with a sweep series. There's all different kinds of Kimuras you can set up from there. And if you can't get them, get that near side underhook. See what you can do from there. Also work a Z guard. Uh, thoughts on comparing Barrow's second, Barrow's two five-round beatings with JDS's two five-round beatings. Jesus. I guess Barrow's didn't last as long considering he got stopped so quickly in the second one, but they're both really bad. Why is Garbrandt not in the UFC rankings? He is. Do you think every main card fighter deserves a cut of the pay-per-view? Um, that is a difficult question to answer. Those against the Ali Act, what are the alternatives? They think change is needed, but bash Ali Act, MMA, FA, and don't offer different ideas. Yeah, sure, that's fine. I'm not against the Ali Act in totality. Let's be very clear about this. I think there are a number of measures we could um, 
pass from a federal legislative standpoint that would be particularly beneficial. Again, the financial transparency laws to me are desperately needed. Uh, and I would not be opposed to putting lengths on promotional contracts or, you know, getting rid of things like a champion's clause or, you know, limiting the ability of a promoter. Like if you sign with the UFC to do MMA fights, they can't tell you that you can't go and do boxing fights, right? Um, that the, these would all be welcome developments, I believe. But, um, but the way in which it was presented in that press release, and you know, we'll see what the language looks like. Just because no one necessarily has a clear alternative doesn't mean there's not criticisms to be made of existing proposals. Um, yes, it is sort of weak and rather silly to be like, this is terrible and to ha offer no alternative. But just because you offer a solution, a proposed solution, doesn't mean we can't examine it. In fact, we have, in fact, we have a moral responsibility to examine it. Um, let's see. So as I can see Rockhold wearing that belt for the next two or three years, who has the best chance of beating him? Maybe if Weidman, if he can control him. I, I really believe, though, that that what happens with Luke Rockhold is he was this brawler. He had these raging instincts. And he had a lot of ability. And he's narrowed it down. you got to get him to open it back up again because that's where he'll make mistakes. That's where he'll be opened up. I think a faster fighter might give him trouble. You know, someone who's really, really quick could give him some trouble. Someone who can force him into bad decisions and then really, you know, take advantage of it very quickly. Um, quick, re you know, what, what was Jose Aldo, do Jose Aldo doing in his prime? He was making excellent reflexive decision making. All right. He was, he was executing defensive, excuse me. He was executing really good reflexive decision making. If you can get someone like that at middleweight, you can really give him some problems. All right. I have to go. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Uh, Sirius XM channel 93. My show's coming up at 4 p.m. We'll have coverage of the UFC 199 workouts later today, but I got to go. So until next time, thank you so much for watching. Give it a thumbs up. Really appreciate it. More coverage about the Ali Act on its way. I promise I can't be a total hypocrite about it. And I really appreciate you guys watching. You guys are the best. Until next time.